Hello, biohackers and biohackistas. This is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I have got Q&A podcast number seven for you here. I haven't probably been quite as consistent as I should be about these Q&A podcasts, but hey, I've gotten seven of them out, so <laughs> making making some progress. I will start with what I thought was a pretty good question that came in from Paul in the UK. He said, or should I try a British accent? Let me let me try a British accent. I've been practicing this. This might be a terrible, terrible English accent. Could it be that just being involved in funding a new drug or mixture of drugs which are not FDA approved not licensed for use as a medicine, or supplement even, is probably fraught with massive legal risks in the US. Imagine a bunch of people take this nootropic, have a bad reaction, or experience some serious lasting side effect. Anyone who's involved in bringing that product to market is going to be in the firing line for not running clinical trials and or getting it licensed and approved for human use. Anyone involved could be facing potentially million dollar lawsuits or fines if it's a big seller and possibly could be looking at even jail time if someone dies from taking this. Therefore, it would be very important to get product liability insurance in place. However, with a product like this on the type of users ingesting it, God knows what these types of risks are known quantities and thus toxic as far as insurance companies go. I doubt you will find any insurance company willing to take on such a product. Sorry to sound like such a down on what may, what may be a good product and idea. Just being realistic here. Can see you are very passionate about this. And then he adds, is drug dealing on YouTube even legal? And that's my my English accent. I've been working on that. Let let me know. Let me know if you like it or if you would uh, really appreciate it if I never talk that way again. So this was actually a quite good question. I don't mean to mock it. I'm just I need to show off my my new accent skill. So this question he posted on my video about how Indiegogo, the crowdfunding website, censored my product. Kabaya Show. This was a little while back, some of you might not remember. I developed a proprietary smart drug and then I put it on Indiegogo because I wanted to kind of proselytize smart drugs and nootropics and biohacking across the crowdfunding platform. I wanted to you know, experiment, try new things. And then I got very close to hitting my funding goal on their platform and then just totally out of the blue they kicked me off their platform and they refunded everyone who had shelled out their you know their hard-earned money on my product and then I had to go about doing it on my own and so I recorded a video blog with some of my uh, uh, fairly vitriolic sub, uh, sentiments on on that and uh, that and this question was uh, Paul's response to it and so yes I I think I actually probably agree with Paul here mostly with with a lot of the things he's saying which is that obviously the the kicking me off of their platform was a risk 
mitigation step on their behalf. And that my uh, particular product, uh, in fact, the, the racetams, in general, in general, there's exceptions, but if we're speaking uh, in generalizations here, uh, the Rastans fall into a bit of a legal gray territory, and some of them are officially classified as not for human consumption. That's why on my website, I actually make that pretty conspicuous, and I uh, discuss why that is, why they're not for human consumption, and I discuss a bit of the uh, legal absurdity of uh, you know, what the government kind of requires us to, you know, fit our products into. And so I had thought that that not for human consumption label would cover me legally doing that crowdfunding on their website and it did not. And my primary irritation with Indiegogo was with the really lackluster customer experience, customer service experience. So Indiegogo takes a fairly high percentage of the money that you raise. I think it's I think it's five percent. Uh, it might be more than that. But when you're doing a product and you're raising thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, that five percent or it might be a little bit more, it really does kind of come out to a significant chunk of change and they have you know many thousands of different fundraising campaigns going on at any given time indiegogo really is a company that's making a lot of money they really are a company that should afford to have good customer service and in my situation if my product so blatantly was uh, violating their terms of service and on the on Indiegogo, there's plenty of supplements that are being crowdfunded on on Indiegogo. But if my product really blatantly violated it, well, they should have had a little bit of uh, some human auditing that was going on earlier on in my campaign, as opposed to just pulling the plug on things once once they reach their. Uh, their threshold of being funded. However, I, I'm almost certain what's going on with Indiegogo is they're probably skimping on the customer service because they want to make as much money as possible. They want to be as efficient as, as possible. They want to be as lean as possible so that they can raise even more money from uh, venture capitalists and from that whole Silicon Valley system that runs upon just uh, efficiency at the cost of customer service, which I spoke about more in that other video blog. And so what they probably do is they probably human audit products that are within high risk categories once they start, they start to reach that risk threshold. So what they're actually doing is they're actually penalizing the people that, that run good campaigns and that are, you know, uh, achieving a measure of success as mine did. And then they're kicking them off. And then they didn't have any um, process of dispute or any process of, uh, you know, compassionate um, communication with their customers. They just send you a single email that says, hey, you're kicked off, go screw yourself. And then if you, uh, then you respond to them and I responded several times and then I got like, it was just a few lines of response. So they really have no care or concern whatsoever for 
their uh, for their customers. They're just they're just in this thing to make money, and I was quite unhappy about that. So that was kind of the reason for my tone in that video. But to address, let's see, the other things that he was saying here. Let's see, he mentioned, um, oh, God knows, what types of risks and unknown quantities are thus toxic. Not really, that's not really a concern, especially with Caballo. Caballo consisted of very, very proven anti-aging and uh, nootropic drugs that have been through all, all of them have been through human clinical trials. Some of them have been through very extensive uh, human clinical trials. And so the, the risk of toxicity is really uh, extraordinarily low on those. The, uh, the, the risks with these kind of, with the kind of ingredients that are go going in Caballo, believe it or not, are lower than say 5-HTP, which I recently did my meta-analysis of, or even caffeine. The, the risks are quite, uh, are, are quite low. And, and uh, so I, I, I am going to be able to get product liability uh, because there is the, those human clinical trials that are done on them. But a company like Indiegogo is just not looking at that sort of thing at all. And uh, yes, I am very passionate about this. So that thanks for your thanks for your honest uh, your honest uh, uh, criticism. And then he also asked. He said, "Is drug dealing on YouTube legal?" That's also a good question. So I suspect I suspect that dealing uh, narcotic drugs on YouTube is not legal. Uh, I suspect doing anything that's illegal in the normal world on YouTube is is also illegal. In in my situation, I am doing something that is legal, which is that I'm selling uh, compounds that are not for human consumption. And at least in the United States, in the state of Colorado, where my business is registered and uh, of which I am a citizen, that is legal to buy and sell uh, what you want to, as long as it is not a uh, a, uh, a scheduled substance, a legally scheduled substance like uh, marijuana or cocaine or, uh, or, or like Crotum almost was. And Crotum is still in that legal territory. I think, I think I, I need to, I, I haven't kept up with every single development with Crotum, but I think Crotum is still in that territory where uh, you can acquire Crotum and then you can sell it to anyone who wants to give you money for it. And that's, that's freedom, man. That's, <laughs> that's what this is all about. Um, however, I'm not actually drug dealing on YouTube because I don't, I don't sell, I don't sell anything on YouTube. I don't have a, I, I don't have a, you know, I don't have, e YouTube is not an e-commerce platform that I'm selling, that I'm selling drugs through, that I'm selling nootropics through. My, what I am doing is I send people to you, to my website, and then uh, at different times I have an e-commerce platform set up on my website where I was selling things on my website, which it's, yeah, it's, if it's legal to sell something in the real world, and if you're using the correct um, labeling and the correct uh, disclaimers on your website, like not for human consumption, then it is legal to sell drugs on your website, you know, provided they're not prescription drugs, provided they fall into the 
the legal area that I've been that I've been describing. Anyways, I so I detect in the tone of your question. It was a good question. It was uh, you use proper grammar and spelling, so I applaud you on that. But I detect in the tone of your question here a bit of an authoritarian instinct. You're saying, you know, hey, isn't there drug, isn't there, isn't there rules about selling drugs? Isn't there rules about insurance? Isn't there rules about crowdfunding? Isn't there, isn't there rules about, you know, uh, doing things on YouTube? Isn't there rules about, about selling things? And, oh, geez, I suspect because you're from the UK, I suspect you've kind of been brought up in this environment of just uh, persnickety, rulemaking, this environment of just, we need rules about every single aspect of our lives and human interaction and without rules for every single thing that we do and without uh, the government enforcing those rules and without penalties for rules for every single aspect of human interaction, then everything is just going to go to hell. And I, I encourage you to, you know, maybe kind of take the red pill a little bit, as they say, and to, uh, and to study philosophy a little bit. And, you know, maybe look into, uh, look into anarcho-capitalism, look into um, some of these uh, schools of thought that are, that are actual freedom. And what you'll find is that when society doesn't have quite as many rules, and when people are allowed to kind of make their own decisions, but then they have to live with the consequences of those decisions, that individuals and society as a whole actually ends up making a whole lot more healthy decisions that are better for everyone than if we have the government and YouTube and a bunch of different people making rules about everything and uh, trying to make sure that everyone stays in line and everyone's a, a good little a good little lemming. Anyways, g good question though. Good question. I'm glad gl I'm glad uh, people are thinking about these these kinds of things. Next question was from Steve, who uh, sent me an email. And he said, hey, Jonathan, I got 60 30 milligram Adderall for $20. Money is not my issue. Boy, that's cheap. Um, what I'm concerned about is one modafinil equal to 30 milligrams of Adderall. The answer to this is probably not. Since they are both focus-promoting pharmaceuticals. Uh, a lot of comparisons get made between modafinil and popular ADHD medication like Adderall. And there's a common misperception that modafinil utilizes a similar mechanism of action to the popular ADHD drugs. And actually, a French study of 33 humans found distinct difference between modafinil and the amphetamine-powered stimulants. Quote, actually, I'll do this in my funny British accent also. These findings demonstrate that the alertness-promoting effects of modafinil and deamphetamine involve distinct EEG activities and do not reside on the same vigilance regulatory processes. So one of the biggest differences uh, between those two is the lack of twitchiness or buzz. And I took ADHD medication, so I'm really intimately familiar with that kind of edgy, cracked out feeling that they deliver. And I've actually, I actually kind of grew to enjoy that feeling 
and uh, modafinil is different from that. It delivers a clear head and a lot of motivation. Uh, you won't feel like uh, dancing and your, uh, your hands won't shake, whereas some people will do those amphetamine-based uh, smart drugs and they're just really overstimulating for them. Whereas, whereas modafinil depends upon the dose, depends upon the person, but uh, they're, not, they're not as stimulating. So they really do work on totally different mechanisms of action. And then the way that people respond to them is, is so different. You know, some people love Adderall and they hate modafinil. And then some people hate modafinil and they end up loving Adderall. And then there's people like me that I actually, I actually like both of them. Actually, both of them work pretty good for me. But again, they do fairly different things. And so you really just can't compare and say, oh, is one modafinil equal to 30 milligrams of Adderall? It also depends. There's, there's the time release Adderall. And then um, modafinil is kind of infamous for being a long-burning nootropic. So with modafinil, a lot of times you'll find that that effect will last you for like 10 hours, sometimes as much as 12 hours. Whereas with Adderall, it seems like, uh, it seems like you get through that effect. It seems like it has more of like maybe a four to six hour window of effect, but I don't know if you're doing the, the time release stuff. So it's, it's, it's hard to say, man. Uh, the bottom line here is, is you should really try both because Neither, actually neither of these is a really great smart drug. Uh, both of them have some, some issues with it. Uh, you'll want to see my meta-analysis of modafinil and my uh, other video review of modafinil where I discuss some of the downsides to modafinil. Neither of them is quite ideal for a person who's like an otherwise healthy person who is looking for a cognitive performance enhancement. Agent. So I'd say uh, actually do this. Actually try both. Even though I know Adderall is really cheap, um, try both and then try some other things. And I think you'll find that, uh, that it's a wide world of cognitive enhancers out there. Then a uh, nice lady named uh, Joy Washington, she commented on my Mandela Effect video. That's right. We're uh, transitioning here from the topic of uh, these hardcore nootropics to the Mandela Effect. She said, we never remember everything we experience, yet this Mandela Effect phenomenon is not a result of false memories. And I wish people would stop saying it is. Just because one person may remember something one way and another remembers it a different way doesn't mean that one of them is wrong. In fact, they're both correct. Especially when you have such large groups of people who recall things one way or another. One can't just write off false memories. Besides, people are getting too caught up in the things uh, that are like changing logos, movie bits, etc., and missing the big picture. And then actually another guy commented on the, the Mandela thing. People feel kind of passionate about this. He said, hey, Limitless, are you saying that Google Trends is showing the Mandela answer more than the actual query because of autocorrection? Memes are only spread on popular stuff. How do you explain the non-popular aspects? Actually, I think I can answer both of these questions together. So they likely are false memories, uh, 
Miss, Miss Washington Joy, the, the nature of false memories and memory confabulation is that you think things happened that didn't happen because your memory is, uh, is reconstructing things in the moment. Your, your memory is not uh, set in stone like uh, a set of ruins or the uh, foundation of your home probably is that's that's the nature of memory memory confabulation it's it's a it's a an uncanny thing it's it's a bit eerie isn't it and the my conclusion if you watch the whole mandela effect video that i did is that the mandela effect uh behaves in such a way that you would think it to if that, that you that it would if it were just mass false memories. It's, it's pretty consistent with that and uh, there's a lot of uniformity with the way that memory confabulation works. So if you take the economies of scale, which these movies and songs and things like that are being viewed by millions of people or billions of people, it makes sense that there'd be consistency with the way that memory confabulation was uh, misinterpreting some of the events of the past. Um, however, there again, there's a couple of these of these Mandela effects which are really quite compelling. Notably, some people have talked about the JFK assassination, where it's six people in the car, and a lot of people are saying, "That's crazy." It used to be four people in the in the car. What the heck is happening here? And this one, to me stands out a bit because you had all of these people, you have all these people, these conspiracy theorists that have really uh, deeply studied the JFK assassination that have spent like years and years of their life studying the JFK assassination and who uh, intimately, intimately are, are familiar with it. Whereas these other Mandela effects are often things like, oh, some scene in a movie or like some logo that you just see in passing while you're, uh, you know, doing your grocery shopping has changed. And those type of things are just things that nobody is really paying that much attention to. You know, when, you, when you're watching the movie uh, Star Wars, you know, you're, you're paying attention to, um, you're watching an entire movie. So are you really going to be like, like super focused and repeatedly studying exactly what Darth Vader is saying to Luke there uh, before uh, after he cuts off his hand? No, not really. But in the case of the JFK assassination, yeah, some people are studying this one like really myopically, like devoting way too much of their time to it. And uh, some of them are reporting that it seems to have, that that fact seems to have changed. So that's kind of, that's kind of weird, which is why I propose the uh, the CIA, Hollywood, uh, psycholo psychology experiments that have been done on it. Uh, recently, I was uh, looking at negative hallucinations. Negative hallucinations, that's the thing where you've got, okay, you've got like the group of people playing basketball and they say, hey, focus on the number of times that the ball is passed between people playing basketball. And then while you're trying to count that, while you're real intently focused on that, then there's a person in a gorilla suit that jumps out and does a silly little dance and you 
have a blindness to that going on. And uh, people call this thing a negative hallucination. So I think it's quite possible that the CIA and Hollywood in their experimentation and their propaganda in all the weirdness that goes on in uh, those two institutions that have had so much interaction over the past century, I find it quite likely that there's been some experimentation with negative hallucinations done at scale and that perhaps some of these Mandela effects have something to do with that. Anyways, I hope that you guys found this uh, Q&A podcast helpful. And as always, I look forward to a continued conversation with you.